Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome to a very special episode of Berlin Side Out, the foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations, or perhaps more appropriately, at least for this particular episode, Munich Side Out. I'm Aaron Gashbrunet, a journalist specializing in German politics, and I'm here in Munich with my friend and co-host, as always, Benjamin Tallis, Senior Fellow at the Council. Of course, the Munich Security Conference has taken over the Bavarian capital this weekend. It is perhaps the world's most influential conference dedicated to security, and it draws a lot of big names. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, Ukrainian President Zelensky, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Uh, among others. Uh, ben, we know that the German hosts use this conference to set foreign policy agenda items. A lot of meetings happen here too, and there are deals that are struck as well. Uh, give us a sense of what happens here in Munich every year. What are the kinds of things that we typically end up seeing? Well, Aaron, thanks very much, and a big servus to everybody from uh, from Munich. <laughs> <laughs> we're here enjoying our fair share of pretzels and excellent beer among the uh, fantastic talks that we're hearing here at the MSC. And indeed, as you mentioned, it's a highly influential conference. It does serve an agenda-setting function for uh, the security and foreign policy crowd. And as you rightly mentioned, that's often done in conjunction with the German government, who are the biggest supporters of the Munich Security Conference. Although it is an independent organization, there's a lot of ties between the German government and the MSC. It's interesting to note, for example, that the chairman of the MSC, now Christoph Heusken, formerly Wolfgang Ischinger, are allowed to continue using their ambassadorial titles, even though they've retired from the Foreign Office. So that gives you an idea of the level of interconnection that exists. Now, this agenda-setting function is done in several ways. There's, of course, the Munich Security Report that's released before the conference, which is an attempt to assess the state of the world and what we might think about doing about it. It's also agenda-setting in terms of who gets to give what speeches and what are the topics that are chosen. And that's something that you around the world or around, around Europe can follow online on the live stream feeds, which give uh, a sense of the big speeches that are given just next door in the Bayerische Hof, the main hotel where the conference is hosted. But that's not all that goes on here. Of course, the main business, as anyone who comes to this regularly will tell you, is done in the back rooms. It's the bilateral meetings between the various participants. And there are hundreds of them at very very high level, ranging from presidents and prime ministers to MPs of all the German political parties, the mainstream parties that are here, and their counterparts from around the world, not to mention a host of think tankers, advisors, journalists, and business people who are all keen to have their say in helping to set that agenda going forward. And to that effect, uh, in addition to the hobnobbing that goes on around the bars of Munich, and there's been plenty of that, we'll return to that at the end, I think there, Aaron, um, there are plenty <laughs> of side events that happen. And we've just come straight from one of those, which we hosted uh, with the DGAP, where we were very lucky to be joined by foreign ministers of the Baltic states, uh, Gabrielis Landsbergis of Lithuania, Christianis Karinc of Latvia, and Margus Zachner of Estonia, as well as German MP Thomas Endel, representatives of business and indeed German foundations. And one of those representatives is joining us in the room today, one of our friends who we've gathered up for the occasion. Britta Jakob, welcome back to Berlin Side Out, to Munich Side Out. I know, um, especially Britta, you of course joined us on the very first episode of Berlin Side Out. Welcome back. 
uh, to uh, the show. And you indeed were speaking uh, at that side event that we just hosted. Um, and Ben, you were moderating this event as well with, uh, with um, the uh, three Baltic foreign ministers. Um, what were your biggest takeaways um, from this discussion that we had earlier? Uh, the Baltics uh, have clearly thought about this question that we were discussing earlier, aligning um, our prosperity and our security, uh, which comes into questions of de-risking from China, This, uh, um, these sorts of variables that come in. Um, how do we get these things on the same page? Um, was there anything that struck you in particular during this particular discussion? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me back on the show. It's great to be with you guys again. And of course, great to be here in Munich, which is really exciting. And also the um, discussion that we just had. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it became very, very clear that um, prosperity and security and indeed also hard security, also if we talk about military security, are the two sides of the same coin. And what struck me most was that um, we could clearly hear from the three foreign ministers that it really indeed has something to do with political will, with boldness, but also with the, um, with the decisiveness to communicate with their own people about what is at stake at the moment for our democracies, for Europe as a whole, for our, in, for our economy, for society as a whole. So they made it very clear that they are really able to think these two areas, uh, these two aspects, um, security and prosperity together, and uh, that we really need, need leaders who um, know what is at stake and what needs to be done. And I think we can also learn a lot um, there and um, definitely our leaders and our, our business leaders, our political leaders definitely have to sit down and talk it through a little bit more. That's right. Sit down, talk it through, come up with a clear plan and communicate that not only to business but to our population. And Britta, you're now working for, for Bayer, the big pharmaceutical company, but formerly you were a foreign policy advisor for the Greens here in Germany. Switching to another political party, we are joined by Carsten Berger. <laughs> None other than <laughs> We're joined by Carsten Berger, who works for the CSU MP uh, Wolfgang Steffinger, but is also representative of the Junge DGAP, the future of our august institution, the German Council on Foreign Relations. Looking on from the audience of that discussion, Carsten, what stood out for you? Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for inviting me um, on this uh, podcast. For me, it's the first time, so I'm a bit nervous. Um, well, I, I totally agree with, with, with which was said. Um, I would just add or flip it a little bit in a different direction. Um, you just said there's no prosperity without security, and I would add there is no development without security. And on the other hand side, there is no security without development. So um, the, the thing is, not only spending money on military budget, um, we do agree on that part, but uh, we also need to think about rebuilding Ukraine. And I think this is also what's already in the discussion. I hear it on other panels. Um, we could win the war or winning the war in it would be the best if we have a rebuilded Ukraine, strong, vibrant Ukraine. And I think this is what we can talk here. Um, how do we support Ukraine, not only military, but also with guarantees? Um, 
giving them loans in the future and um, helping them to develop an economy which is sustainable. And this is my biggest takeaway so far. Great, absolutely. And it's those, finding those opportunities where we can see the coincidence of these agendas, where they're very clearly aligned and seizing them, actually acting on it. But sadly, that doesn't seem to be what we're really clearly doing at the moment. Um, Joseph Fabowski, Joe. Great to have you on the show, also from Jung Adegiape, among other uh, affiliations that you have. How would you join in this discussion? Because we talked a little bit before about also un- needing to unleash this creativity of free people, unleash the power of business to actually improve our security, as well as what Carsten said, to spur development, to bring back that hope of progress, material progress. So what should we do? Thank you, Ben, for, uh, for having me here. Um, and Joe Verbowski, um from Jung Adegiape. I am the... Uh, Chairman of the uh, Jung ADGAP Regional Forum in Berlin, and also the head of the Security Policy Working Group for the Jung ADGAP. Um, maybe to go back to what you said at the beginning about agenda setting at the conference, it kind of occurred to me I can just think of three examples of things happening outside the conference which are setting the global agenda in a way which should maybe give us a moment to reflect. One is Congress just went into recess without approving Ukraine aid. Two, um, Alexei Navalny just died in prison. And number three, um, there's a, a small town in the, in the border of, of Ukraine that has, is probably going to fall soon, um, partially because the aid is not reaching the Ukrainians at the moment and because the Russians are attacking again. And it just seems to me maybe we should you know, think about a little bit of you know, the level of urgency. Maybe we need to increase it. Um, when we're talking about some of these things, and if we look at um, if we look at what comes out of comes out of the discussion today, I think some people have have sort of reached um, clearer conclusions than others. I think that um, in terms of the Baltic states, they have a, a unique advantage, or I wouldn't even say it's an advantage. They just have a unique situation in terms of you know their their uh, integration into into European German economy, um, a clearer sense of uh, threat perception um, and an appreciation also for the community of values that they belong to, um, and this, you know, these multiple factors sort of create more cohesion, and that's kind of a takeaway that that I noticed from the three ministers that were speaking. Maybe another point to to take into consideration is that we need a much better developed dialogue between industry and uh, and politics. I think that's that's pretty clearly missing. Um, I think on the on the industry side, that's um, that's becoming more developed, and there's there's a there's a good understanding of where where uh, incentives should probably be set. But I think that um, yeah, the question of political will to engage with this is very important, and to start really looking at you know public-private partnerships and how do we create resilient societies um, that go farther beyond you know, just just military or isolated, siloed segments. Right. This is not an either-or. We shouldn't be viewing these things in separation. It's how we bring them together. And Britta, we're going to come back to you in a second on this, whether whether those incentives are clear for business or is that a matter of contention we could draw on. But it's really important to highlight that this is why we wanted to bring these three Baltic foreign ministers into this discussion, because the discussion in their national capitals and the way they are helping set that discussion, set the agenda for that discussion, is still very different than in Berlin. What we heard from Gabriela Landsbergis, for example, was the, um, the case of many people know Lithuania's sterling support, resolute support for Ukraine, fewer are aware of how Lithuania has stood up to China. 
So, for example, allowing Taiwan to open a representative office in its own name, which brought about um, a severe response from China, threatening all sorts of economic sanctions, measures against. But rather than back down, the Lithuanians doubled down and allowed the Taiwanese to open the office, faced down the threat from China, and are now profiting from it in the form of a new investment from Taiwan, as well as the Chinese actually having backed down themselves, standing up to the bully. And it, this seemed to be part of the agenda that Margus Tarkner, the foreign minister of Estonia, also laid out when he said, we need to be fit for freedom. And that, Aaron, surely is how we convince those different actors in our societies that Joe was just talking about and that Britain and uh, Carsten have mentioned that we can move in that same direction together, isn't it? Yeah, I think that we really, really have to talk about a, a lot more about the opportunities that come uh, with uh, things like friendshoring, with, um, as we talk about, aligning the sources of our security and prosperity, trading more with our friends, um, you know, becoming less dependent on authoritarians, because we also see that being dependent on authoritarians is expensive. Our very favorite example to use on this show about how cheap Russian gas seemed until we spent 200 billion euros or we're prepared to spend that money to get ourselves through a single winter, you know, uh, buy once, pay twice, that sort of thing. But uh, the Lithuanian example uh, with Taiwan is an interesting one because since 2021, the trade volume between Lithuania and Taiwan has increased by 50%. That's quite a huge jump in a very short period of time. So uh, we do see that there are also opportunities um, there as well. This isn't simply a discussion uh, you know, we, we need to have that de-risking discussion, but it shouldn't just be about this. It should also be about seizing new opportunities. And that is a point, Britta, that you actually brought up uh, during uh, our discussion, um, is, is that uh, having geopolitical expertise also integrated within business helps spot risk, but also opportunities. What do you say to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the one side is that you really need to include these geopolitical skills um, deeply into the uh, business organizations themselves, just to have people there who really can understand the broader picture, what is going on in the world, where are the geopolitical shifts taking place, and what does this mean for business and for your investments, for where you produce, where you buy, where you source. So this is all um, relevant, of course. But then the other uh, side of it is um, exactly that political strategy and also political leadership. And these two things have to come together because we heard today also, I found it very interesting, um, from, um, from Gabrielius Landsberg, who said, of course, it's not a comfortable situation or it's even difficult to explain to your people why this is now important, why we should do this. So as long as we as businesses don't really know where to go, what, what is it that um, our uh, government, our political leadership wants to do and why it is important, we get ambiguous um, signals actually there. So then I think we won't achieve what we all want, which is more security and prosperity and stability. Uh, Britta, Joe, Karsten, let's come back to this point uh, uh, for a quick second, because we heard um, that business really just isn't getting the kinds of cues from the political level, from government, that it needs. We see that this is a problem in two places. We see that this is a problem in Ukraine. Um, we have companies that are willing to invest in Ukraine, help, help re Ukraine rebuild 
rebuild, reconstruct, and also take advantage of the opportunities that Ukraine um, offers. But businesses simply aren't getting the kinds of uh, messages that they need from the political level, whether it is, here's how we are going to secure Ukraine now and in the future, um, to really take advantage of that opportunity. But then on the other end, when it comes to things like China de-risking, there's no set, clear set of uh, expectations as to what a risk is um, and, and how to even tackle it. The chancellery has sort of said, okay, you're kind of on your own here. It's up to companies to de-risk and then they're sort of left to decide what that means. Uh, what kind of signals do we need from the political level? I would say I could give you, both of you, the answer. Uh, just read the strategies, the strategies who have just been published in the last uh, weeks and years, but I think you have read them. And the problem is there is not a strategy, or let's, let's face it like this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, one of the problems with German politics highlighted very exactly, succinctly exactly, for you. Exactly. If it, if it mean, says strategy, be suspicious of it, you know? Exactly. This is not really a strategy. It's a description of the status quo in a way, and this is not even a worse description. That's a pretty good work so far. But there is no goal in the end. There is nothing to achieve in the end. And if we don't have a goal which we want to arrive, we don't know how to do the, how to which way to go. And I think this is precisely what you just mentioned um, that the that the um, that our economy doesn't know what to expect and and where to to build on. And I think that's the thing with the Zeitenwende. Um, this is a whole phrase which is um, interesting term, but it's not a strategy so far, and we're still waiting for it to come up. Actually, that's a really interesting point about the Zeitenwende, because if we take a look at Olaf Scholz's speech, he talks about a Zeitenwende that has happened. Hmm. He doesn't describe it as something that needs to be done. In, in, and that's kind of an interesting sort of tidbit that I always think about when we come off of this, that in, in fact he's just saying the world has changed, but there is hmm. you know, only an implied we should do something about it. And I think what Carson's saying is absolutely correct. I mean, we have a huge problem in Germany of setting goals. Um, and I think that that's why we have so many strategies, um, which don't necessarily, don't get implemented because we don't have a clear vision of what we actually want to achieve. Um, this is a European problem, but this is also a very specifically German problem. And I think until we uh, address that, we're going to continue to have the same kind of Ruminations. Right, exactly. It's not only a German problem, but it is also a German problem with particularly German characteristics that come through in the, in the debate time and time again. And it's interesting what you just mentioned. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Are we the objects or the subjects of the Titan vendor? Is it something that's happening to us or is it something we actually do? And Carsten, what you mentioned rightly there is so far a lot of the strategic work in uh, scare quotes that's been done is about a structural admiration of the problem rather than doing something seriously about it. And so this... Uh, uh, in, in our discussion earlier, Britta, we, we talked about how government actually left the business of de-risking to individual companies, which allowed Mercedes-Benz, for example, to say, sure, oh, we're yeah. de-risking by increasing our exposure to China, a remark that did not go down well with Germany's allies, it must be said, nor with many Germans who are really concerned about the dependencies this creates. And it seems as though some of those big German companies are banking on being too big and too German to let the to be allowed to fail by the German government. But also to be fair, because the other part is missing as well, that where is the counter offer, let's say, where are the incentives, where is, you know, what, what the government offers to, to really increase 
uh, investments here in Germany, here in Europe, to, to really um, be keen on keeping mm. the industrial base here at home. Mm -hmm. So this is also missing, and that is why basically mm. businesses don't really know what Right, I mean, he, here at home or near to home, how we do reshoring, how we do nearshoring, how we do friendshoring, etc., And that's, that came up in our discussion today as well. There are attractive places to do business, our friends with whom we share values. We wouldn't face the kind of authoritarian dependencies we've had in the past, but we've not been taking advantage of those. And something that really struck me when uh, Christianis Karanj said it was, we don't embrace our strength. We don't own our strength. We're scared of our strength, in fact. And that's something that I think is preventing us from taking this true strategic look but not only in relation to these issues we've talked about now, but to a variety of other issues that are coming up here in Munich. With that in mind, what's on your radar? Joe, what's, uh, what's floating your boat here in Munich? What are the big issues that people are talking about, or, or not, and they should be? I think I'll pick up the, the, the line about not knowing our strengths, or not, not embracing our strengths. This, this is something that, that's been, uh, that I've been dealing with for, for a while, thinking about how do you, maybe it's not just not, not um, not acting from a position of strength, but not knowing what those strengths are. I mean, and how to unleash those. And I think that's where we get into the question about incentives. Governments have been taught, or the German government talks a lot about regulation, but they should be talking a lot more about how do they just unleash the forces that are within society. You know, when it comes to strengthening the defense industrial base, we have things about like how to address the, the civilian clause at the university so that more people can engage in, in military research or dual use research. Allowing um, or encouraging banks to invest in companies that are working in this space. You know, a lot of these things are not necessarily cost additive for the government, but they bring so much more to the mm. table. And I don't see those things being addressed. No, indeed, we're not harnessing our competitive advantage, which is indeed that creative power of free people and free enterprise. We've not got, as we've talked before about, the regulatory environment, the incentive environment, the structure of our capital markets, right? And that's something we're going to come back to. But, uh, Carsten, when, when you were talking with your MDB before the conference, what were the big issues on your agenda, saying what this is what we have to be aware of? And how, how are you finding that playing out here in Munich? Uh, Ambassador Heusken just shifted last year a little bit the focus from this um, strictly transatlantic focus a little bit more to the south, uh, which was absolutely the right way to deal with the new world order in a way, I think. And my fear is that we don't have the time this, this year to talk about these issues, um, namely what I already said, uh, development. Um, developing countries um, help is, is helping us a lot in, in preventing them to get failed states or whatever. Mm. Um, we will not have enough time to talk about Sudan, about the whole um, Sub-Sahara region. So I, I fear that we talk um, only about the, um, the Russian um, enemy, number one. But of course, um, I totally understand that we are on the Munich Security Conference and it's completely correct that this is the main focus. So don't get me wrong at mm. that point. But I think we also should take a little bit of time to talk about the development of the world in order to fight our enemies already way before. Um, right, and this, this is the point we said before, we're not the ones doing the agenda setting. Yeah, we're not yeah. the ones with the strategic vision or the goal setting. And so we're letting events come to us and dictate our agenda here as much as actually in our foreign policy making in general. Britain. We're driven by the others. We're driven by the others, and this is it. So possessing our power also means creating a clear vision. And 
Britta, let's put some of those issues that are around town at the moment into that context. What should be our priorities? What should be our priorities, but also I heard uh, actually uh, a lot of panels also going on there, which is uh, so many things are happening as MSC side events, right? Mm. I mean, it's not uh, everything that is taking place at Bayerischerhof, so it's really worth to, to do the round through the city and maybe mm. attend other discussions, because there... Um, I found the discussions about um, transformation, which is economic transformation, but also peace and stability or future-proof democracies, very, very interesting. How do we handle the multi-crisis? And there also, and that it comes back from, to what you said, what is the role and also what is the perspective of the so-called global south or maybe also swing states? So what is their take of, of all of that? So. And what I observed what was that the, the discussion really about um, democracies versus autocracies, so the systemic rivalry we are in, that is taking place. And interestingly, also um, some arguments that said, well, of course, we are in this, in this rivalry, but it is also a fact that democracies today don't um, deliver effectively anymore. So what do we do about that? Maybe it's not sufficient enough to say, hey, people, but democracy is the better system. So, of course, you choose that. And they would say, well, but if I don't get you know, enough out of it, maybe I'm not leaning to the democratic um, camp here. So I found right. that very interesting. Which is why many of our people fear transformation and fear change itself rather than embracing as it used to be. The new has come to be something to be worried about rather than something we can own and actually make, make, make ours in that way. And of course, you're in firm neo-idealist territory here on Berlin Inside <laughs> Out. So this, this is an argument that's falling, falling on very receptive ears indeed. How do we live up to that potential at home? And, and Aaron, that's something we've talked about a lot. But what else is on your radar while we're here? Well, there's a few things, um, and as Britta um, very aptly said, not uh, there's so much more than just what's going on in the main conference in, in Bayerischerhof where all of the big speeches happen. Uh, one thing that I'm watching out for uh, myself is to see if we see any advance in the discussion about seizing frozen Russian assets. Hundreds of billions in Russian central bank assets in Western countries are just sitting there untouched and untouchable since the beginning of the war. We know countries like Canada, the US and UK are in favor of seizing these assets and giving them to the Ukrainians for reconstruction, but also to help fund victory for defense. Uh, Patrick Heinemann, a German lawyer we've spoken to, uh, along with the International Center for Ukrainian Victories, Olena Holushka, who has of course appeared on our show before, they say they can't find any legal impediment to Germany being on board with such a seizure. Uh, but this country is one of the ones dragging its feet on this. Um, but we do know that there are some meetings in Munich are happening uh, about this. We know that this is a stated priority of Maga Sakna, who of course uh, we heard from today, the Estonian um, foreign minister. Uh, the US State Department is making preparations. So that's a big pick for one thing I'm watching out for. Uh, but a few uh, other things. Um, there, there is uh, perhaps the depressing point of support for Ukraine that I wonder um, how much that will be picked up on here. That's right, Aaron. And that's something that our friend Oliver Moody, who's been on the podcast before, who's here reporting for the Times of London, uh, is, has noted as one of his priorities for looking at. And I think this, yeah. is a, this is a specter that is really haunting the conference this year, is that we no longer face a stalemate in Ukraine as being the worst outcome this year. If we carry on the way we're going, we're actually really courting the possibility of defeat which would be calamitous for our security in Europe 
as well as for our prosperity. And this message doesn't seem to have got through, that we need to be able to step up the kind of support Ukraine needs in order to allow them to shift to active defence this year, to prepare in terms of numbers of troops trained, in terms of equipment uh, corralled together and the munitions to back it up, to go on the offensive in 25 and 26 and actually win that war. What people, I think, haven't really understood here so far, at least we don't hear it in a serious way, is that that is nothing in opposition to rearming ourselves. This is a sequencing issue. That, that by doing that, by buying Ukraine time to train and to then go on the offensive against Russia, we buy ourselves the time to credibly rearm after that. And the cheapest, the best value way to actually improve our security is to defeat Russia in Ukraine. But we've not been really hearing too much about, about that in a positive sense, have we? Well, as Joe said, we are having a Munich security conference um, without... Uh, a bill from the U.S. being passed um, to, uh, you know, guarantee further aid for Ukraine. And at the same time, uh, we see that Europe uh, is not able to sort of step in and fill the gap yet. We have 144 billion euros that's been promised, but only about 77 billion that's been um, allocated. Um, that's way behind what we what we need it to be. Uh, guys, what do you think of, of, of this playing out uh, in Munich? How do you, might, do you think that we might actually see some movement here on that? Or is that going to be one of those big unspoken um, elephants in the room as the conference goes on? I don't want to be too pessimistic about it all the time. But what I hear um, listening to these conversations is still a lot of finger pointing at each other, right? I mean, from... Germans, for example, saying, yeah, but the French don't do enough and the Brits don't do enough and, and we have done so much already. So it's still this, uh, you know, basically navel gazing of who did what and not really having um, a, an, an, a clear goal of what is needed and what we should deliver. So I'm a little pessimistic about that. I think we, we won't see any officials statement or final report or anything, that, but that's not the goal. You have just mentioned it. The biggest thing here is not what happens on TV screens. The biggest thing is what happens in the back rooms. And I guess this is the, the really the value of the Munich Security Conference. You can use this time here in February, um, having elections, quite a lot of elections this year, to build friendships um, and have stable connections, even though next elections might change the, the global order. Right, and Joe, I mean, we, we heard from the Baltic Foreign Ministers today, the kind of social interactions they'll be having with their counterparts and with others around, their absolute determination that Ukraine must win must be rubbing off on some people, we'd hope, but there's another big uh, figure in this regard coming to, to address the conference tomorrow. President Zelensky uh, will be talking to the MSC. Do you expect that to have some effect or, or what is or is are we actually growing growing used to those kind of appeals? I think there's a there's a big danger. Um, if we look at what happened in, um, in in Congress when Zelensky came to speak um, back in, in, in 2023 and in, in the fall, it wasn't the same reception that he was getting in early 2023 in 2022. Yeah. And I think that everyone's going to say they're supportive, but really if we're looking at things like aid, you know, Congress going into re into um, recession for, uh, for I think two weeks, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's really a bad omen coming sort of concurrent with the with the conference, and there we're back at agenda setting and other people mm -hmm. setting the agendas, and sort of, you know, I think the need for, for for us to think about how do we how do we actually bring the discussions and bring them into impact. Absolutely. Just two more things to highlight for people, perhaps that they'd like to watch out for, for what comes out of the conference or otherwise, is that Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock 
here in Germany has called for a larger defense fund to modernize the Bundeswehr. And that's something we've talked about a lot on Berlin Side Out, that the 100 billion special fund announced two years ago won't even touch the sides of the Bundeswehr's capability gaps. It won't make up for the years of underinvestment that was there. So it's, it's good now to see actually some clear rhetorical action being taken, but will that be supported by... Uh, the government, and will it actually be passed through? Well, and we do have to point out here that um, we have seen uh, opposition Sedu defense experts like Roderick Kizaveta say that that 100 billion uh, euro fund isn't enough. He did put more of a number on it, that it really should be about three times as, as much. He said mm. that last week. But this is the first time that we've actually heard uh, you know, a senior figure from within the government, in this case, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock, uh, say that the special fund should actually mm-hmm. be higher. And of course, the timing that she chose to make this announcement right before the beginning of MSC is always uh, interesting here and plays into the agenda that's, setting impact. That's right. right. And Britta, I mean, we've heard recent reports that uh, Foreign Minister Baerbock has lost her mojo a little bit, hasn't been quite as discur- discursively strident as she was in the early days of the full scale war. Perhaps this is now coming back. Is this a sign that the Greens might be standing up to be counted? Yeah, I I could imagine that this is also driven maybe a little bit by some kind of impatience taking place, let's put it that way, within this uh, um, traffic light coalition here and uh, the the hesitant, uh, let's say, approach, especially uh, by the Chancellery. Yeah, the traffic light stuck on red. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. It was ever thus. <laughs> exactly. But then um, then I heard also some quote by uh, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius saying, and I don't know if it really translates well in English, but I try, who basically said, well, a good horse only jumps as high as it has to, relating to the defense budget and so on. So saying, well, you know, the 100 billion is already a high amount and we reach the 2%, so, you know, let's be um, clear about that or a little bit humble. So when I heard that, then I was like, "Mm, okay, maybe this isn't um, promising enough. Yes, I can imagine... Bigger and better horses, I think, <laughs> if, we, if we stick with that metaphor, which I may not import into English any time soon. No, <laughs> but thank you yeah, so much we'll for, for trying. I'm, but, a, I'm a little yeah. bit more pessimistic, to be honest, in that point, because what does it mean to increase it 100 billion? It means more debts. And this doesn't mean that we have already got the basic idea of, of setting an agenda, of setting a goal, and mm-hmm. of prioritizing. So if we increase that 100, the next one will show up and say, I need 100 for digitalization, and the next one will show up. So my fear is that in the end, nothing will happen, because this is just in the parliament, the bill will not be passed. It's also a good question about what the money is actually going to be used for. And I mean, the 100 billion was already a a number. It was a symbolic number, because it was such a huge number that no one had seen it before. We were talking about defense budgets around 50 billion, and all of a sudden we're getting 100 billion. But the, the thing is, is what's the goal? What are we using the Bundeswehr for? How is it integrated with our allies? How does it defend Germany, and how does it defend Europe? And when, until that's clear, no money on this planet will actually save the Bundeswehr. In the, in the beginning, we wanted to use it for innovation, for, for arms, for guns, and for all the necessary stuff which you really need in a, in a war. And look how, how we use it right now, the 100 million. Plugging gaps. That's it. And so strategic planning, again, comes into the equation, saying what it's for. So you can also clearly say to Germany's people, look, these are not savings that we can afford to make. 
this is why we need to go and spend this money because it is in our interest to do so. And if we don't, all our other transitions that we wish to manage don't stand a chance. So I think there's a, there's a leadership gap, there's a rhetorical gap, as well as a financial and a capability gap. The last thing we'd flag is we're looking out keenly for discussions on extended deterrence. Now, this yes. has been something. We had a, an interesting line at an event here earlier that Germany, perhaps an underreported aspect of the Titan vendor that has gained momentum and accelerated at beyond even the new German speed in the last couple of weeks, is the discussion about nuclear weapons. Is Germany going to become one of the first countries to say, Atomkraft, nein danke, Atomwaffen, ja bitte? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to see a German bomb? <laughs> I want to see any politician at the... Uh, on the street, having exactly this discussion. <laughs> we, we invite everyone to the global street of Berlin Side Out to come and have, and have this the, discussion. And have the nuclear weapon discussion, discussion with us. But in all seriousness, this is coming into the debate in a way that has actually surprised me in terms of who's taking it up in a serious way. And I think that's, that's to the credit of the politicians who are actually pushing out the, the boat on this. Because laying out the discursive field is a precursor to actually then action taking place. And we need to have that debate. So you know, kudos and credit where it's due. There's been a little bit of fun had while we're in town too. Now, whoever said that politics was show business for ugly people was not at the Monocle magazine party that we went to yesterday, is... which was a stylish affair, it must be said. It, it definitely was, yes. Thank you very much to Monocle for the invitation to that. And, um, you know, we, we may have met a certain high flyer in the German business world in an elevator. Indeed, as well as some of the, the magazine, Monocle's magazine, leading inspirations over the years. And uh, we are looking Looking forward to many good social events during the course of this um, weekend. But unless someone should get the wrong impression, what's actually talked about at those events is the serious substance that we've just been talked about before. These are, you meet a lot of politics junkies here in Munich who are 24-7 on the go working out how to try and advance their agendas and most of them working out how to, how, how to try and make the world a better place. And it's been a pleasure to share our virtual space today with you and also our physical space here in Munich with Britti Jakob. Carsten Berger and Joe Bobowski. Thank you very much indeed all. Thank, thank you. you very thank much. You. Yeah, thank you very much to our listeners and to our guests. That is all for this special episode of Berlin Side Out or one more time, Munich, Munich Side Out, Out. Uh, from Munich. Stay tuned for one more special live episode from Munich. This isn't our only one. Uh, this one is coming out of the Pirate Security Conference, which we are also attending uh, in Munich as well. We'll be chatting new idealism and the importance of a new German grand strategy from there, along with taking some burning questions uh, as well from the audience. Until then, from Munich, Auf Wiedersehen and tschüss.